Well, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Uh, as always, thank you to our members who have helped to make these programs possible. Uh, your support is deeply appreciated. Um, just a reminder, we are open. Uh, we're back in business. Uh, we have new protocols in place to make the museum experience uh, safe for everybody. Uh, you will be required to purchase uh, tickets in advance online. Uh, we have a number of uh, exhibitions that are relatively new for you to see uh, that we opened last month. Um, Landscape Saved Garden Club of Virginia 100. It's their centennial year, of course. Uh, Mending Walls, uh, which is a project that we have done with uh, landscape artists, uh, or excuse me, uh, muralists from around uh, Richmond. Um, and then the Agents of Change exhibit, uh, Female Activism in Virginia uh, from Women's Suffrage to Today. Uh, and just a, a, a highlight on that, uh, there is a film uh, that accompanies uh, this centennial commemoration that will be broadcast. Uh, its premiere is tonight on Virginia Public Media channel. So check your listings for that at 9 p.m. And then tomorrow uh, there will be a live uh, program with the historians who were featured in uh, the documentary uh, that will be broadcast at noon uh, on Facebook and YouTube. So uh, be sure to tune in for that. Uh, Today, our speaker is Nicole Myers Turner. Uh, Dr. Turner is an assistant professor of religious studies at Yale University. Uh, she is the author of Soul Liberty, the Evolution of Black Religious Politics in Post-Emancipation Virginia. Uh, this is the subject of her talk today. Um, Nicole is also currently a member of the editorial advisory board of our own Virginia magazine of history and biography as well. So please welcome Dr. Nicole Myers-Turner. Hi, um, thank you so much for having me. Um, is my mic on and can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, you can, great. Um, so I just wanna say thank you so much for the invitation to present on my uh, new book, Soul Liberty. Um, I want to, um, this is particularly um, wonderful time to be doing this presentation because I actually started my research for this project at the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, I was a Mellon Fellow um, for um, about a week, right as I was starting my research. And I learned so much about archival research and I encountered so many wonderful resources, some of which made their way into the books and some of them that didn't. Uh, for example, I, um, I, I looked at the Daniel Webster Davis papers and I was really excited to read his notebooks where it brought me really close to the curriculum that he used to teach uh, black students and to teach them about politics and to teach them about religion and to teach them other subjects. Uh, and I also had the opportunity to come really close to Giles Buckner Cook, uh, another a Reverend Giles Buckner Cook. Um, and I learned by looking at his little commonplace books, they were like these little four by three inch notebooks uh, in which he did things like catalog the names of the members of the churches and uh, he wrote accounts of his day. And so I felt really close to Giles Buckner Cook. 
as he was kind of riding around, you know, visiting church members and things like that. And I think the uh, archivist probably realized that I was growing quite close to Giles Buckner Cook because on about the third or fourth day of the of my research, not only did she provide with the cradle, you know, to keep the commonplace book intact and some gloves to make sure we could protect that object from some greasy fingers, um, but also she asked me if I would like to have a magnifying glass. So I imagine I was probably getting pretty close with my nose into those little commonplace books, trying to decipher uh, Giles Cook's handwriting. Um, but that was a really uh, sort of formative moment in my research. And so I'm very grateful and happy to be back presenting on uh, the product of that research. And while I won't be talking about Giles Buckner Cook today, he did make it into the book and he's a significant figure in the development of uh, theological education. Um, and so that is what, um, so you can check out the book and, and, and read a little bit more about Giles Cook. But I also wanna thank you all for taking the time to um, spend a little bit of your day learning a little bit about black churches, uh, black politics and emancipation. In a moment of national reckoning with the need to acknowledge that black lives matter and in the midst of the transforming landscape of historical memory and imagination, understanding black self-determination through black churches at a deeper level will contribute to the rebuilding of the communal fabric in a more just and equitable way. And you know, so this speaks to some of the broader aims of the book um, to sort of transform our society by understanding black church politics and black religious politics more broadly. Um, but a more specific goal of the project is to examine some of the well-worn narratives of black church politics. And I wanna to start today with um, a bit more of a familiar image. Uh, the image, this is an image of the Reverend, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr leading a prayer in Selma, Alabama in February of 1865. And he's flanked by Reverend uh, Ralph Abernathy and other civil rights uh, protesters. This image resurfaced a couple of years ago um, when NFL football player Colin Kaepernick began to take a knee during the playing of the national anthem as part of his attempt to bring attention to the Black Lives Matter protests and to issues around police violence against black people. Um, this image was resurfaced in an effort to connect Colin Kaepernick to this longer history of black protests. Um, but the image also reflects one of the central narratives of the civil rights movement. It's a story that connects black churches in the political struggle for civil rights. It centers black churches as key sites of political struggle and mobilization. And if we want to read a little deeper, this narrative centers black male preachers like Dr. King at the front of the political struggle and because they are kneeling in prayer, the importance of faith. And what I wanna talk about today uh, is this idea that you know, black ministers, black preachers are at the forefront of black political struggle. Um, but I wanna talk about how that became the case, right? Where did this movement for civil rights with preachers and activist church members at the forefront come from? The roots of this activism can certainly be found in the post-emancipation churches and associations and in the evolution of the dynamics. Um, in the evolution of these dynamics are further exposed 
the dynamics of these uh, evolution are further exposed in the political movement uh, and moment of the Readjuster Party in the 1870s and the congressional campaign and election of John Mercer Langston in 1888. This is an important story because it helps us to understand the context out of which black church people became active in the electoral sphere of politics. But I also will note that this is a complicated story because there was no single political strategy or approach uh, that black people used in pursuit of making freedom meaningful right after emancipation. Um, then as now, freedom was a capacious concept and could mean different things to different people. And certainly the the, there could be different methods for securing what that freedom meant. Even trickier was finding allies in the political system that was run by former Confederates as was the case in Virginia. So my hope though, is that by, ex by exploring this complicated and important story, we'll be able to have a more nuanced view of black religious politics, both in the period of emancipation and by extension today. So today I wanna to depict basically three transformative moments through a series of snapshots. So just three moments in the, in the transition of black churches after emancipation in order to give you a sense of how black church politics changed over the 30 years following emancipation. So first, I wanna talk about how black church members who without the franchise made the case for themselves as participants in government through their associations. Second, I wanna explore a little bit about how gender roles developed in black churches and associations Specifically, how ideas about men at the forefront of the ministry became more pronounced, while women became less visible and sometimes more limited in their power in the churches. And third, how church association networks became central to the political engagement in the readjuster movement. So first, black churches um, and their argument for political participation. So this is an image of the first African Baptist church in Richmond, uh, and it captures a sense of how churches were these sort of important gathering spaces for free and freed black people. Eventually these churches, and you can see like you sort of in uh, first Baptist church was quite a large church and allowed for a lot of people uh, to come and hear uh, preachers, but also political speakers. And these churches also eventually became important nodes of a network that linked black Christians in communities uh, regionally and throughout the state, and that undergirded their sense of political efficacy. But in 1865, right after emancipation, black people used their churches and associations to make the case for political participation. Um, so right after the Civil War ended, free people had nothing but freedom, but the members of the churches practically immediately formed these associations and conventions, these annual gatherings of delegates from churches and from some of the associations as a means of strengthening their communities. One association, the Consolidated American Baptist Missionary Convention, argued for their prominence in providing aid to their freed people uh, over the 20 some odd other missionary organizations that were also uh, carrying out missionary work among the freed people. Um, they, you know, argued about this because um, 
they noted that they couldn't raise enough money to support their efforts unless they were able to show that they were capable of doing the work. They argued, quote, but our very organization is our proclamation to the world that we are able to do this work and that we ought to do it. And so these associations were the sites for making the argument for capacity, for political participation, for leadership. These associations were regional gatherings, as was the case with the Colored Shiloh Baptist Association, um, which started in 1865 uh, with a fellowship of seven churches that had a total of 5,000 members. A year later, it had 28 churches um, as part of the fellowship and about 14,000 members. By 1884, so towards the end of the readjusted movement, it had 101 churches with about 37,000 members. So you can get a sense that growth was rapid and significant and sustained over the two decades after emancipation. And so the associations grew in numbers of people they engaged, <clears throat> excuse me, and in the geographies that they covered. So for example, another example, in 1868, the Virginia Baptist State Convention was formed as a state level organization that would also receive members from the regional associations and become the way that the regional associations could become connected to larger networks of Baptists in the state. In addition to the numerical and geographical growth of these associations, the work that they carried out reflected the importance that they had in making the case for political participation through the ways they were organized and in the work that they did. So scholars have long argued, right, that churches um, were places where black people and freed people developed speaking skills and organizing skills and the political skills that they used in, in the political sphere. And you cannot doubt, right, that by speaking in public meetings, by planning these gatherings um, that often involve negotiating, uh, not just with community members about how to provide accommodations for all the people who would be attending these, uh, these meetings, but also navigating and negotiating with the railroads even to get um, discounted fares for people who were traveling to these different associations. Um, one cannot doubt that all of this produced a type of uh, organizational skill. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important, super important actually, to acknowledge what the participants said about themselves, right? Their declaration that they already had the skills to do this work. So in 1865, they said, we have the capacity to do organizing work and political work um, at the moment of emancipation and even before. And they further demonstrated this capacity by the fact that they were already in 1865, um, organizing associations that had elections, uh, annual elections, they had committees, um, they wrote constitutions, uh, and they published and circulated the minutes of their meetings. And so they argued through all of these actions, right, that they, and not Northern white missionaries, were the ones most suited to help the newly emancipated communities of free people. Through their very organizational structures, they made the case for political participation. It was the only mechanism at that moment available to them. Which brings me to my second point about the ways that gender roles were being shaped and articulated in these spaces. So 
So as the political landscape started to shift, there also came to be a greater emphasis on the leadership of men in the pulpit and women in what can be seen as supportive or subordinated roles. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this image, this is an image of a church from 1874, and you can see it's a picture of a minister proclaiming from the pulpit while uh, worshipers are enthralled, laying at the uh, altar in ecstatic worship. Um, and you can see that women are sort of playing the role of attendants, carrying fans and fanning those who are sort of at the altar. And there are many you know, um, readings that we could make of this particular image. But I want to focus on the location of the women in support roles. Um, and, and, and I don't want to mean to suggest that supportive roles are not powerful roles, as I will go on to explain, but that there is an assumption about sort of the power dynamics and the power that women held by virtue of where they stood in this, um, in this configuration of church life. One of the ways that women, women's position in the associations in the churches began to be established was in the case of financial participation. Um, and oftentimes when people sort of think about black women in churches, um, they're often depicted as the ones who kind of carry the power of the purse. And so it's really interesting to me to observe the sort of first instances of women appearing even in the association minutes was in connection with their financial participation. They were the first recognized financial donors so before they started to be recognized and elected as superintendents of the Sunday schools and participating on the Sunday school committees and so the educational, um, educational components, uh, and before they started participating even on the hospitality committees where they would sort of arrange for housing and food and things like that, uh, women were the first donors. And there was uh, at one of the associations at the Virginia Baptist State Convention in 1865, um, the first woman to be recognized was Mrs. Harriet Wells for her sacrificial gift of a gold coin. Uh, Miss Wells was the wife of one of the ministers from the convention. And she also went on to give an annual donation of $3 uh, to every convention after that. And it was after this, you know, sort of sustained representation of Mrs. Wells giving her sacrificial donation of $3 to the convention that we then start to see women show up in some of the other other aspects of the organization that had to do with finances, like the benevolent societies. It was also after Mrs. Wells's repeated donations of $3 that we start to see a transformation in the ways that the conventions handled missionary work. Um, missionary work, when it was first established, was established as something that would be the work of ministers, the work of men. Only men could be missionaries. Um, and the missionary was supposed to raise money um, for the building and sustenance of churches, as well as support and sustain the building of churches and communities through preaching and other ministerial acts. But as the some of the first missionaries were not as successful or not as committed, perhaps, to raising uh, money, eventually the missionary roles started to shift over to women who were able to carry out the work of uh, raising money. Uh, so this is one of the ways we can start to see the transformation in gender roles by virtue of the first act of uh, Reverend, uh, of Mrs. Wells, uh, and then the sort of changing role that women started to play in finance and fundraising. And so while this area of power or financial stewardship was being expanded as an area of leadership, 
women were also being marginalized in other decision-making capacities um, or they're becoming sort of more objects of male protection. And you can see this developing in the discipline meetings of the Guildfield Baptist Church of Petersburg. And in particular in the cases uh, in the church's handling of unwed pregnancy, which shows how the churches could move from allowing women to participate in leadership and decision-making to subordinating that um, leadership uh, participation to a male minister's authority. So in 1861-62, the church was handling these cases of unwed pregnancy, uh, and essentially what they would do is to expel the woman who was uh, accused of you know, being pregnant out of wedlock, uh, and that was so much, pretty much the end of it. After emancipation, though, this process changed um, for a brief moment from 1868 to about 1870. The church shifted its practice of just disciplining a woman for being pregnant out of wedlock and instead allowing her to name the person who had impregnated her. And if she named the person, he would be disciplined as well. And this discipline usually involved being expelled from the church. But this practice was stopped when the church's pastor basically told the church to change the policy. The community believed that the policy could be amended, right, by allowing, by by requiring the woman to just provide a witness or some evidence to support her claim about who had impregnated her. Um, but the pastor didn't find this to be a suitable solution to the issue and instead rec uh, recommended that the church and its committees uh, change the policy back to just having the woman be uh, accused of being pregnant out of wedlock and then leave the discipline of the male to the quote, all seeing God. Um, and that's what they did. Uh, and so they changed their policy of allowing the woman to name her partner and instead allowed, you know, return to the practice of the woman being the one disciplined. And while it certainly was a change that happened on the heels of a particularly contentious case um, where there were claims and counterclaims and there was quite a bit of sort of turmoil within the community about how, you know, the claims were being adjudicated. Um, and so one can certainly understand why, you know, a pastor might be uh, interested and, and concerned about uh, maintaining some sense of community and order and those kinds of things. But it also was a moment where women's authority and ability to be sort of adjudicators of justice and, you know, discipline in the communities was, was, uh, was advanced and then undermined. And so we can see that gender roles were shifting and being developed over the entire period after emancipation, because even by the sort of latter part of the 19th century, uh, some black ministers actually played a key role in then helping to helping to establish uh, educational opportunities for women uh, as a means of protecting them uh, from having to be out and about in labor situations. And so we can see a sort of changing set of uh, dynamics around gender roles for men and women during this whole uh, post-emancipation period. Uh, and that the forces of change began early in the post-emancipation period. Um, and I will also note, though I'm not uh, gonna sort of go into it in more detail here, but theological education, which is where Giles Buckner Cook comes back into the story, was also a place where gendered uh, paradigms were being established right, by who was allowed to attend school and so forth. Um, but over this period, we can see, right, this evolution of gender roles and gender politics. What becomes visible through the transformations in gender roles and associations in churches was how the churches became spaces with male leadership, able to shape the direction of the churches and 
become the most visible to the readjuster movement political machine that was attempting to mobilize a powerful contingent of black voters. And this brings me to the third and final moment of the transition that I want to discuss today. And this has to do with the readjuster movement and black church networks. And it's a story that is often told through the uh, life and political work of uh, former Confederate general, William Mahone, um, who's credited with potentially breaking the solid south of conservative democratic control through the fusion party of the readjuster movement. Um, the readjuster movement was so named because of its argument for readjusting the state debt, uh, something that was weighing heavily on the state after the Civil War um, and drew uh, coalitions of uh, free blacks and um, free black people, white farmers, even some of the urban elite. Um, but in 1883, um, Mahone sought to use the Black Church Association networks for political purposes. Um, and he tried to canvas those networks, uh, sorry, he tried to harness those networks through a canvas. And um, he basically, uh, he's trying to mobilize the networks in support of the readjuster candidates for the legislature. And in 1883, he had his uh, county level um, leaders provide the names of all of the churches, the black churches uh, and their leaders um, because the party had by that point uh, already gained control of the patronage because in 1879, um, with, through a coalition of black delegates to the state legislature, uh, he was able to become the nominee or the elected appointed official to the US Senate because at that point in time, uh, US senators were appointed by the state legislature. And so it was through a coalition of black delegates to the state legislature that he was able to be appointed to uh, this Senate position where he gained control of the patronage in spectacular fashion. Um, and then the readjusters went on to win control of the gubernatorial seat in 1881 um, and change and basically bring about what was Virginia's reconstruction and changing uh, issues around voting, issues around uh, jury service, and even abolishing the whipping posts. Um, but this story is often, you know, and, and understandably, if you see the archive of William Mahone, how the story can sort of be told all the way through Mahone and what his, his particular uh, sort of political aims were and how he organized. Um, but when the story is shifted, if we shift our vantage point for how to tell this story um, to looking at what it was that black churches and black associations did, we can come to see that though he was able to build this coalition of uh, free black people and poor whites and poor white people and elite uh, folks from the cities, that he was able to do this because of the already existing networks of the black church associations and because of the depth of their associations. And so this map is a representation of what it was that Mahone knew about black churches um, and where they were located uh, which you can see by the outline uh, that he got a sense of where some of the churches were, um, but that he didn't get all of them. He didn't get all of the locations where black churches were because uh, the spotted co counties are the ones where the associations had networks of people that they already knew about. And importantly, 
um, we can see from this map that a couple of things, or we can glean from this map a couple of things. One is that Mahone recognized the political possibility of the associations. And this is not just about him sort of being able to capitalize on what was already extant, but that he acknowledged that this was a powerful uh, set of relationships that he wanted to try to tap into by performing this canvas, by trying to identify who, um, where these churches were, who were their leaders. But we can also sort of glean from this map that these convention networks were deeper and broader than what Mahone was able to ascertain. So though this map only shows you a snapshot in time of 1883, um, we could produce and I could produce maps of years from 1865 up to 1883 demonstrating the years that these conventions met. Some of them started earlier, some of them started later, but they all sort of had a yearly uh, gathering of their members and connections. And so they already knew uh, who they were, where they were, how many they were. And we can know that also from their uh, minutes, from their records of their meetings, where they cataloged who their members were, how many churches there were, what were the names of the churches, who were the pastors and all this information. So what we can see from the map of the canvas and the association is where Mahone was able to gather information, none of which was as coherent or as com complete as the church association records. The readjusters suffered a political setback in 1883 when the Danville massacre suppressed voter turnout. And again, in 1885, when William Cameron lost his bid for governor, but just like the church networks, um, sorry, but just like the church networks were there before Mahone canvassed them, they continued after the political defeat of the readjusters and their influence can be seen in the 1888 congressional campaign of John Mercer Langston. Um, and John Mercer Langston, who was the first uh, black, uh, black man elected to the US Congress from Virginia, Virginia uh, was able to harness uh, black churches, uh, black leadership uh, and black networks to secure his political seat. And we can see how they played out and played an important role in the discussion of racial leadership when Langston decided to run for the U.S. congressional seat to represent Virginia's first congressional district in 1888. So in the associations and in the churches, Black people had already been arguing uh, for putting a Black man in a position to hold federal office. Uh, on the basis that Black people were capable and ready to lead uh, something that, an argument rather, they had been making already for 20 years or more. Um, and in his biography, uh, Langston reported that he had the support of ministers for his congressional bid and newspaper accounts of the grassroots nominating committee meeting uh, that selected uh, Langston reported the presence of ministers in the meetings. But what's interesting about these accounts is that the ministers are not at the center of the narrative. They're not at the forefront of the narrative. They're not named uh, as sort of key figures, although they're sort of mentioned as a group of supporters of Langston. Um, and so in this way, they're part of the political narrative, but they're not centered as the figureheads uh, for black political engagement. Instead, Langston highlights an organization of women, Langston and Morton Invincibles, uh, and uh, there was a church member from Guilfield Baptist Church who played really important roles in Langston's campaign um, and who deployed the strategies of the church associations to support 
Langston's contest. So in 1888, uh, after the election, Langston, uh, Langston's opponent, E.C. Venable, was named the winner of the congressional seat. And Langston, who had anticipated that the Democrats might try to steal the election, had organized poll watchers, one of whom was a member of Guildfield Church and who was responsible for uh, monitoring the election in the Petersburg district uh, that Guildfield Church was located in. And this poll watcher recorded the names of every man who turned out to vote, presumably for, a Lang for Langston, on election day. And so when Langston took his appeal to the contested election committee of the Congress to basically contest that the election had been uh, rigged and misreported. That church member, poll watcher, read the names of every black male voter into the congressional record as evidence of the support that Langston had. Langston won the contest and was eventually seated just months before the end of his term. So while in church spaces, ministerial authority as male authority was hardened, it also allowed them to become visible to the political machine as evidenced by Mahone's canvas. But what was clear from Langston's campaign, however, was that from the community perspective, ministers weren't always out front. Uh, ministers reflected the will of the people on the political uh, landscape while the church members did the political legwork. So, why is this moment um, important? Why is this moment in, important in the history of Black churches of Reconstruction? And what insights does it offer us today? I would submit that by narrating the evolution of Black religious politics, I hope to release Black churches and religious institutions from the prism of training ground and from binary critiques of churches being active or not active enough. Instead, the churches of emancipation were multifaceted locations where politics and community life were in flux. By depicting these transformations, my goal is to create more space for Black religions and their diversity and transformative power, not as critique, but as inspiration. And yet, the opportunity to critique the ways that gender roles were instantiated in these spaces remains. Even as Black women performed important roles that shaped and sustained their church communities, like fundraising and organizing, and even developing gender consciousness and race consciousness as uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham and Elsa Barkley Brown and Anthea Butler and Judith Castleberry have argued, the exclusions of women from decision-making roles and primary leadership in the ministry were a function of choices made in the moment, not a historical fact. And finally, I hope to, that this is, the study shows how ministers were political agents. As leaders of churches, they were not at the front forefront of the people, if one were to think of them sort of marching, but rather at the back, as a servant of the people in the political realm. The message in the political arena was that the minister reflects, not represents the people he serves. Politically, it was not a matter of going through the minister to the people, but going to the minister to get through to the people. So in conclusion, though the dominance of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. lingers in the public and historical imaginary as a paradigm of religious politics, I suggest that there should be a more nuanced view of black religious politics as evolving and that the relationship between gender and politics 
in religious institutions should at least become a point of inquiry when we think about Black religion and politics. So thank you for your attention and I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you, Nicole, fascinating. Um, while we're waiting for questions to come in, uh, my question is, uh, religious life is always and continues to be a very integral part of uh, African-American life. How, how were those interwoven during this period as far as um, the integration of family life, religious life, and how did that translate into, into politics? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so black churches um, in large part, you know, were organizations of families. Um, they sort of mark a kind of kinship network of, of people. And so some of the churches, some of the smaller churches, you know, like St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Petersburg, for example, uh, was a family church where the vestry was, you know, consisted of the um of the children of the woman who helped found it, Caroline Bragg. Um, and, and so in some sense, the churches were family churches. And that was one of the ways that there was this sort of uh, interplay between families and, and the church space. Uh, and then we can see through the case of Guilfield where there are sort of the debates about um, unwed pregnancy and, it, and, and how they should be handled, that there were also uh, sites that helped to organize ideas about family life and about sexuality and, uh, and, and governance uh, all mixed in together. Um, so the churches were sites of family building and critique of what it meant to be family. Uh, and then, you know, they also became these mechanisms for political engagement is what I, you know, sort of trying to demonstrate in the book that uh, because of the ways that the churches organized uh, into the associations that form these networks of repeated engagement, of sharing, um, not just about sort of how to sort of organize community, which they certainly did, but also where they, you know, debated what it meant for a minister to be, to participate in politics as some of them did. And some of them argued that ministers should, and some of them argued that some of them, that they shouldn't. Um, but in any case, they started to really engage uh, not just the sort of religious and spiritual or even the familial questions of community, but they also engaged the political questions about what did it mean to be engaged, uh, who should be engaged in what ways. Um, and as I sort of suggested, they started to use their spaces to make political claims uh, as well. Um, so there was an interesting sort of mixing of the two um, sort of family and political um, landscapes uh, in the post-emancipation period. And, and you spoke a bit about um, the difference in gender roles in, in relationship to the church. And um, I'm wondering how, how much transition there might have been um, from this period directly after emancipation into the 20th century. Um, as in many cases, uh, women started to take on a more active role uh, in life in general, not just in family life, but uh, with the rise of the progressive movement of women of, of all races becoming more engaged in social and political reform, whether you've seen any, any transition in that area as far as your research. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so my study basically goes up to 1890, so the end of uh, John Mercer Langston's um, campaign or his uh, term, and doesn't sort of reach to the formation of the National Baptist Convention, which uh, Evelyn Books Higginbotham describes in sort of the flowering of 
uh, Black women's political engagement that takes place, you know, sort of in that um, end of the 19th century, early 20th century moment. Uh, but you can start to see some of the, for me, the, the narrative is about kind of explaining the pre-story to that activism, right? Why is it that there was a, a need for the formation of the Women's Convention? Um, why was it that, you know, uh, Black women start to form their social organizations in the 1890s? Um, and we don't sort of see the same kinds of um, sort of developments early on. And so this is a story that really seeks to kind of lay out the landscape of creating gendered spaces for political engagement. And so, you know, the whole notion that, you know, by the early 20th century is when you start to see women, uh, Black women in the Baptist conventions become missionaries because it sort of, it starts to become uh, an extension of their financial support and their financial giving and their ability to fundraise. Um, so you can see some of the uh, dynamics that shape the beginnings of women's political activism in ways. But I will also say that, you know, it's not as though Black women were not politically active. Um, you know, part of the early uh, post-emancipation narrative uh, is shaped as it is because the vote initially went to Black men. But that didn't mean that Black women didn't play a role in uh, supporting uh, Black men as they went to the polls, as we know they did, um, oftentimes going as a sort of protective balance of um, bodies to sort of go to the polls with Black men and carrying guns and, and the like to protect them as they were trying to exercise the franchise. So Black women were engaged in that way. One of the things that was uh, really striking to me, though, is as I started to engage and think about the political machine that Mahone established, was that there were all kinds of people who, um, you know, sort of wrote into Mahone to try to secure patronage appointments, but I didn't find very many or any really references to Black women. Uh, and so it's really an interesting model where Black women are supportive of Black men going to the polls and engaged in the political discourses, but not being engaged by the political machine. Um, and so, you know, I think there are, um, that's an interesting dynamic of that moment. And I think also feeds into kind of the, the kinds of political activism and engagement we see flowering by the end of the end of the 19th century among Black women. And, and I know that this, uh, postdates the period of your book a bit, but as we moved into the Jim Crow era, um, you know, which has obviously a, a really dramatic impact on um, not just uh, African Americans, but some whites as well in terms of their abilities to exercise franchise. Um, did you see anything in your research that that um, sort of is a precursor to what was going to happen? Um, perhaps specifically in Virginia, uh, as we move from the 19th into the 20th century, um, is, is there anything in your research that indicated that there was uh, some indicators of uh, these restrictions that were about to come and, and really have an impact on, on, on life and for the black community? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, think, I think the John Mercer Langston um, campaign, his success, um, could be viewed as a precursor to the uh, Jim Crow denials of Black voting rights. Um, and, and I think the way that it plays out is through, A, his success, right, that he's able to uh, marshal enough support um, to run a campaign. I mean, he was already independently wealthy, so he was able to, you know, uh, pay for his own um, 
hall where he could give speeches and not worry about being shouted down by opponents and things like that. So he was able to create a space for himself uh, in the political landscape, but he also was able to build on and use, like I said, the, um, the tools and mechanisms of black church organizing um, to, for his own political ends. And importantly, there was you know this kind of conversation going on about uh, black, um, black self-determination, right? That there was this tension in the in the readjuster party about what, uh, how high could the could a black man go in politics? What office could a black man hold? And you know the party starts to fracture its um its alliance between you know sort of poor white people and black farmers starts to fracture as black people reassert and reassert that black self-determination is a real thing and black people should be allowed to hold office at every level, right? And that they have the capacity to do so. And so this whole conversation about sort of black um, black political power, I think sets up um, some of the backlash uh, to black participation as does just the success of, um, of John Mercer Langston's campaign. Um, so I think that's some of where we can see the beginnings of, of the fray. Did you see anything in your research about whether uh, the, the white faith-based communities had any sense of what was happening in, in the black religious communities, whether there was an attempt to, uh, to reach out or form any alliances? Mm-hmm. So um, I've tracked this only at the sort of very beginnings of the, um, you know, of, of the post-emancipation period. So I was really looking at sort of what were black churches doing, trying to try to track this narrative of how they were politically engaging. But one of the things that happens with one of the um, Baptist associations, I believe it was the Shiloh Association, um, was that they initially wanted to remain affiliated with and con- in community with the, one of the white Baptist associations. Um, and forgive me for not remembering the exact name at this time. Um, but they wanted to remain in fellowship um, and they were actually turned away um, from the association. And so, um, you know, this is one of those moments where, you know, if you think about the sort of longer narrative of um, sort of evangelical history and the sort of um, ways that black people and black people became involved in some of these, these associations, the Baptist churches and, and the like was through the evangelical moment that uh, allowed for the kind of expansion of what it meant to be part of community. And then in the moment of emancipation to try to facilitate a continuance of that relationship, albeit on different terms, because of course now black people formerly enslaved people are free and they can now would expect to have, you know, the ability to participate in meetings and governance and all these things. Um, but that overture was rejected. Uh, and, and you know, I think in, in similar fashion, um, they um, eventually moved to wanting, you know, more independence, more sort of black leadership, both in churches and schools and the like. Um, and you see this, and, and so I'm just thinking about a comparative example um, of the in the Episcopal tradition, where uh, with St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, um, this is a, a denomination that you know the exodus of Black people from that denomination was almost complete <laughs> at emancipation. Um, so the extent to the extent that there were so that there was an independent Black church or a couple of independent Black churches that they were really kind of enclaves of Black independence and. Um, 
and, and were a site of trying to figure out how to be part of community with white fellow white believers, but at the same time to preserve uh, a space of sort of black independence. Um, so I think you see similar dynamics playing out in both of these traditions. Um, if that you know, sort of speak to a more um, complicated, less cooperative um, kind of relationship between black and white um, people in religious spaces. It's a fascinating topic and I don't think a lot of people are aware of just how, how deep uh, some of these relationships within the, the African-American community um, in the religious context are. And um, I thank you so much. Uh, what was Mr. Langston's background? Background. So he was, oh, I see. So he was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, born free. Um, he trained as, and he, um, he trained, he went to Oberlin College. He trained as a lawyer. He, um, he, you know, was very politically engaged with the Republican Party um, in the uh, before emancipation and after. Um, and so, um, you know, he would have been considered part of the sort of black elite if you uh, sort of break them into sort of class uh, sort of frameworks. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting um, narrative to sort of focus on how he was able to uh, achieve political prominence the way that he did, because again, he had access to resources that most black people, most free black people did not. Um, so he went on to become, um, you know, a temporary president of Virginia State University when it was first formed. Um, so he held a lot of um, high political um, positions um, throughout his uh, career. Fascinating topic. Um, so what's next in your research? Is there another book in the works? Uh, so I am in the process of um, working on uh, a piece on reconstruction and race um, for a journal, the Journal of Civil War Era, um, that will um, sort of take some of the insights that I hope that the book exposes about Black religion and politics and kind of expand it. Um, so that is in the works. Um, there should also be a, um, a blog post at, the, at Muster for the Journal of Civil War Era coming out tomorrow um, that looks at um, the sort of transformation in Black political leadership. Um, and from there, um, I also am working now on a piece um, that uh, explores even in, in even greater detail some of the uh, dynamics in the life of George Freeman Bragg Jr., who was a black Episcopal priest um, and a you know, key figure in the readjuster movement. Um, so a few pieces uh, on the horizon. Well, this sounds terrific. Best of luck with your research. And thank you again uh, for your wonderful lecture today. Um, we're so pleased that you could join us. Uh, again, uh, copies of Dr. Turner's book can be available through the Virginia Museum of History and Culture website. And I also believe University of North Carolina Press, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so before we sign off, just again, a couple of program notes. Uh, again, uh, tune in to Virginia Public Media uh, channels tonight at nine o'clock for a one hour film, uh, These Things Can Be Done, Women's Suffrage in Virginia. Uh, and uh, join us tomorrow at noon 
through YouTube and Facebook, uh, where we'll have a discussion uh, with uh, all of the historians that were featured on the film. Uh, and also stay tuned uh, next month for our next banner lecture. That's at September 10th uh, at noon. Uh, Nicole Marantonio will discuss her book, Confederate Exceptionalism, Civil War Myth and Memory in the 21st Century. So that does it for today. Again, thank you all for joining us uh, and be well. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you.